afternoon, Universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions, and false notions of the enemy, and setting up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and together we are studying Christian dogmatics because we believe that when God speaks, he does so not only that we would hear him, but also that we would imbibe these words in such a way that we can speak them back both to him and to each other. It's as St. Paul exhorts all Christians when he writes to Timothy. He says to hunger for the truth and watch your life and doctrine closely, to persevere in them. And then he warns because the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Christian, he goes on, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And that is what we're striving to do here, to hold to that message as taught by testing it against Dr. Francis Pieper's Christian dogmatics and testing that against the Holy Scriptures. We're going to be doing a lot of that today with my brother and friend here, Pastor Sam Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California. Got him on the line, ready to pick up at Dr. Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 35, the second paragraph, where if you are reading along, you might get distracted here because he says Christianity is the absolute, altogether, perfect, and unsurpassable religion, which is what he's been saying up to this point, for two reasons. And then he says the first reason is that it conveys the perfect salvation. And then he goes on for like two and a half pages talking about that first reason. You might be wondering, where is that second reason? So the first reason is it conveys perfect salvation. The second reason starts on page 37, where he says, in the second place, the Christian religion is perfect and insurpassable because its source and norm is not the word of men, but God's own word, which is perfect beyond criticism. All of this is to say what he's been stating so far in this section six that began back on page 34, that Christianity is the complete religion for two reasons, or it's the final religion. It's the only really true religion for two reasons. One, it has a complete salvation that we can't add to or take away from. And two, it's established by God's word, which we can't add to or take away from. What we're going to be spending our time for this episode and this hour today here doing is looking at his proofs drawn from the scriptures for that first reason. Right. So, but let's go ahead and just uh, talk with Pastor Schultz here for a second about Christianity as the absolute religion, the fact that it has an absolute salvation, the fact that it is founded on the Word of God. Anything you'd like to say there, just to start us off, Pastor Schultz? I think we had mentioned this uh, in some of the past episodes, uh, no doubt, and I know Pieper does in uh, earlier parts of this volume one, where he talks about uh, you know there's two religions in the world, and he that may seem like kind of a strange thing. People say, oh, there's hundreds, there's thousands, there's there's an uncountable amount of different religions in the world but when you look at the way that people is looking at it or the way that the scriptures look at it which is law and gospel um, you know or another way to say is it free and not free there, there's only one religion in the world that is truly free and that's what uh, people has been setting out discussing here in some of these opening chapters that's that's one of the main parts that uh, is in this first reason for why Christianity is uh, what he calls the absolute or the perfect religion because it uh, it is free. It is completely Christ's work for us, whereas all the other religions of the world in some way, shape, or form are not free. They involve works of the law. They involve works of men. They involve us doing, ascending, or um, 
fulfilling or keeping an eightfold path or doing five pillars or obeying some kind of law or set of laws by which we achieve or receive or merit uh, some kind of salvation. So uh, that's the contrast that he's drawn before here, and here he expands that again uh, to bolster this point about Christianity being the absolute religion. And, and it's over and against Christians in his day who were trying to claim that Christianity wasn't really done coming into being, that it was sort of more of an evolutionary process. But I think maybe more important than that point is, is the one you just stated about there being these two religions, one of grace, one of works, one of Christ and God's word, one of man and his opinion. And people might look at, I mean, you, you mentioned very uh, candidly there, you know, Buddhism, Islam, you didn't call them by name, you referenced their, their teachings or their ladders that you have to climb. People might look at this vast swath of religions in the world and you see all the different kinds of bells and whistles that they have. And so you think that those amount to real differences. But if you can pare away the surface of all the religions of the world and get down to the very root of what makes it spiritual, you find that even those who say, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, they end up being quite a bit religious about having to be a good person, having to climb away, have, having to justify themselves. And that Christianity stands just radically set apart as this totally sufficient salvation purchased for you by somebody who is not you. Yeah, most people think, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, they say. So it, it's that uh, that opinion legacy we talked about before, right? The opinion of the law that there's something we have to do or be or feel or think or create or, you know, something that we, we have to be a part of. We have to get our fingers in that pie of salvation. That's the opinion of the law, you know, that we have to have uh, something to do with it. And that, that pops up everywhere. And then Christianity comes along and says, nope, sorry, you got nothing to do with this. Uh, <laughs> take your good works and love your neighbor. But, uh, you know, your, your credit is no good here. Uh, Christ won that for you on the cross. It's radically foolish to try to pay a debt that's already been paid. I mean, you can, you can try that with your credit card company. They're going to send you a check. They're not going to take more money than you actually owe them. How much more foolish is this to try to do this with God himself when the, the debt of debt disillusion or of irreconciliation, which we have, has been nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus Christ. All religions of the world that are not accepting of that, by definition, become a singular religion of needless, needless works. It's not that the works don't do good for the neighbor from time to time, but they are needless in the sense of being religious. They simply amount to love. And this is kind of interesting, too, that most of the religions of the world basically are what they would call a religion of of love, and Christianity is a religion of God loving us, and there, there really is a difference there between those two things. It's not that we don't love our neighbor, but we don't see it as our actual religion, more a fruit of it. So anyhow, yeah, yeah you want to go on? You want to respond to that? No, no, that was great. I, I think that was just a good point I had mentioned to my confirmation kids yesterday when we were talking about the sacraments. Um, you know, most people see the sacraments as our work for God, you know, uh, baptism is something I do to dedicate my life to Christ or what have you. Uh, the Lord's Supper is something that maybe we do to, uh, you know, fulfill his commands and listen to his word. But when we look at what scripture actually says about it, just like this issue of salvation, uh, it actually is, like you said, God giving us something, right? Giving us his life, giving us himself on the cross and in the sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper and, you know, and his word of absolution and the word of uh, his scriptures, it's all about him giving himself to us in those means. So that just bears it out through the rest of Christian doctrine, too. So 
getting back to where people wants to go and where we're going to focus on today, this is all then leading to the proclamation, really, that, that Christianity is absolute, that it's final, that there is no more new religions coming, that we have the final version of what God actually wants us to believe and how he wants us to worship him. And the first reason of the of the two, one, the second being that the word of God is what it's based on, but the first reason is that the salvation that it gives is perfect, is complete. I, the, I keep thinking of the Greek word telos, which, which is more than like morally perfect. It means so, oh man, I'm, I'm, I, it's a word that we even have trouble translating, so completely finished and done that there is nothing more that can be done to it. You think of maybe uh, David's Michelang- or Michelangelo's David and the statue. I mean, what are you going to add to that? If you've ever seen it up close, where, where are you going to chink away and improve on it? It is it's telos. It's complete. And the salvation that Christ has done on the cross is the same way. There's not even a smidgen we can add to this thing. And Pieper goes on to explain this by saying, and again, on the paragraph on page 35, third paragraph, it does not ask man, Christianity does not ask man to reconcile God through his own works or virtues as all non-Christian religions do. But it teaches man to accept and obtain by faith the perfect and insurpassable reconciliation affected by Christ. And he's going to go on and give some some proofs of this in just a moment. And I guess maybe we've already been talking about this a little bit, but this claim that all other non-Christian religions ask you to to work, that might strike somebody as a bit strange if they just if they haven't really ever researched it. I mean, someone who hasn't really thought about what other religions teach, do you think that they have trouble coming to terms with the fact that they're all teaching a ladder in some form? I think so. It's not something that maybe, even though it, it seems obvious uh, to us at first, uh, it, it may not be something that is as obvious on the surface of it uh, when people look at it. You know, it, it sometimes uh, the latter is hidden behind, like you mentioned, love, or sometimes it's hidden behind. You know, I, I think of the the Mormon uh, ward down the church or down the street from us. Uh, you know, family values. People people are attracted to a Mormon religion for uh, for different reasons, and that's one of them. Yeah. So sometimes there's these other outer trappings, or I don't know, um, atmosphere to, to use kind of a subjective sort of word uh, that attract people, and then they don't really realize that there's this law ladder um, system of works in place uh, that really makes the whole thing tick until they get inside of it. You know, I, I think that's another thing that separates Christianity in this regard too, is that we. We kind of lay all our cards on the table. Not that you can expect to know everything instantly, but that we say, "Look, this is, this is the law, and this is the gospel, and this is what Christianity is." You, you don't have to, you know, delve into some secret thing or learn a secret handshake. The last thing that a fish discovers, so the proverb goes, uh, is water. And in some ways, I suppose the last thing a sinner realizes is that he's trying to justify himself, and that everything he does is tuned to that. And his yeah, best religion is is nothing but that. Yeah, it's the hardest thing to realize because it goes to the root of our root of our sinful pride, right? That we want to justify ourselves. So, you know, think of the man, uh, the rich man that Jesus talked to. That uh, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And he, before that, he thought in his arrogance, he, well, yeah, I've kept that commandment and I've kept that commandment and I've done pretty good here overall. And uh, then Jesus tightens down the law on him to uh, expose his self-justification and the, the disciples kind of pick up on that too that well if he can't be saved then how who could uh but jesus says well with man right if you're going to go the way of man's works for salvation it's impossible but with god all things are possible and now to, to prove his his assertion here again that christianity is unsurpassable 
because it teaches that we have the unsurpassable reconciliation between God and man made already by Jesus Christ. He quotes 2 Corinthians 5, and he lists verses 18 and 19 because they overlap. I think he's taking part of each verse. And so if you go back, and I'm going to read that context as a whole, and then I want to kind of, if you can, Pastor Schultes, draw out why is he going to this verse? What's he trying to get us to get from this verse? It says, beginning at verse 16, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot there we could actually just kind of talk about and have fun with. Oh, but fantastic section. But yeah. why, why is Peeper going there? Well, I think one of the reasons that he goes there is uh, this idea of reconciliation uh, cuts to the heart of of what the the question that he's attacking is, or the, the salvation issue is, uh, if we if we go for a minute back in uh, back in our minds, back in the scriptures to Genesis, what we see from the fall and then pretty much everything outward from that point is a continued separation. You know, you, Adam and Eve first are separated from God and His Word and His promise and His His command not to eat the fruit, and they do, and then they're separated from one another. And then their children are separated from each other, including murder, uh, you know, Cain and Abel. And then that that separation that is caused by sin and death and, and self-pride and all these things spreads throughout, you know, and finally you get to Genesis like uh, 6 through 8 and the flood and it's spread throughout all creation. By the time you get to the book of Judges, it's everybody's doing what was right in their own eyes. And, you know, in those days, Israel had no king and it was it was complete pandemonium. Uh, so reconciliation is the opposite of that, where we see now that separation caused by sin we see that restored uh, and not by our works but by christ doing the work for us so this is i think why people brings this out is it's not our doing of anything not our thinking our feeling our doing not our works that accomplishes this as he calls it the unsurpassable reconciliation because if it's up to us it's not going to be it's not going to happen we're not going to be reconciled with god uh, but it so it has to be god that reconciles us to him and and this is what paul is talking about here god was in christ reconciling us to the father right? not counting our trespasses against us and other you know, there's just some great jam-packed gospel uh verses in this section of second corinthians yeah there's two more i want to look at well, let's hop down to 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god this is the great exchange right that, that christ has become he didn't just join with sinners he literally infused himself with evil knowing that because he's god he could swallow it and, and he did and then so the result now is that we're being infused with the, the counterpunch of his righteousness which totally overwhelms and swallows the evil within us am i am i parsing that right yeah i think that's i think that's what paul is on to the you know luther called that the great exchange as well and uh, he was he was fond of saying a rather strong statement that might sound odd to our ears today, but he would say he would say often that Christ on the cross 
is not just numbered with sinners, like you said, but he's the greatest sinner of all, in fact, because he's taking on himself the entire sinful humanity, uh, each and every one of our sins and our sinfulness uh, on himself on the cross and becomes uh, cursed by that. But yet, like you said, he's able to destroy death in the process because he's also perfect and innocent. It's a, it's just a wonderful paradox, but it's not a, uh, not a contradiction, a, a blessed paradox, we could call it. Yeah, I remember someone once trying to convince me that this didn't this this it said it was made to be sin, but that didn't mean that he actually had the sin himself because he was perfect, and they kept kept insisting. But Jesus was perfect; he couldn't be sin. I'm, I'm like, well, yes and no, <laughs> you know. Exactly. exactly. If you try to solve that tension, you're gonna you're gonna break the you know you're gonna break the string, and you're gonna you're gonna snap what the cross is doing because at that at that time you have both, yeah, perfectly innocent, righteous, holy one, and yet also the as Paul writing Galatians later, uh, you know he is cursed for us too. He he takes all of God's sin for us. He's he's condemned and uh, sentenced to wrath and punishment for us too. So he all of that is happening at once at, at that uh, that greatest time. Yeah. And I think that verse twenty one then really sheds a, a good light on verse seventeen, which is something I I've heard in American Christian or evangelical circles really abused a little bit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I've heard this taught as sort of really a, an, another kind of law. So you're, you're struggling in your life and, and you don't feel like your faith is quite enough. And someone will say, well, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. So y you have the right now to live basically a, a perfect or a blessed or a prosperous, whatever, whatever, you know, insert into blank, whatever you want to have be your blessing. You have the right now to have that because of Jesus. Jesus, let's name and claim it, or however you want to say it. Whereas in this context, and letting verse 21 again explain it for us, no, like literally, because you believe in Jesus, you are now risen from the dead. I know it doesn't feel like it, but you actually are. This is all, this is where the, the Lutheran understanding of through faith is so helpful. This is all through faith. You don't get to feel it. You don't get to see it, but it's true all the same. Your sin has passed away. The new righteousness of Christ has come. His resurrection is the, the visible proof we get. Otherwise, we wait patiently for the, the fulfillment of all things at the eschaton. Yeah, I think that new creation language is uh, especially comforting because that's what uh, I think especially uh, Christians long for. You know, we, we long to be li like creation, uh, Paul says itself, is groaning in eager expectation of, uh, of what is to come. And, and so, too, in Christ, we, we do that because we see the things around us. We see the world around us, uh, everything but a new creation. Uh, and yet we have that we have that promises, right? The, we have the first fruits of him who was raised from the dead. And that's that's what we cling to. That's the object, the hope. Uh, the, the, the substance of our faith. In other words, Pieper goes on on page 35 again, the, the Christian religion is absolutely perfect or absolutely complete because it is not a moral code instructing men how to earn the forgiveness of sins themselves, but rather it is a faith in that forgiveness of sins which was gained through Christ's vicarious fulfillment of the law and his substitutionary suffering of our punishment. So the moral code could never be enough. I mean, it, do we feel like if you're listening out there and you've been listening to Cross Defense for a while, I mean, I know it's only on once a week, so maybe it doesn't hit you quite as repetitively as it does to those of us who are recording it, but does it feel like we're saying the same thing over and over again? Does it feel like Peeper's really driving the same point home? Because he is, but I think the reason is what we got to earlier is because it's so hard for us to see. 
that the perfection of Christianity is not love. The perfection of Christianity is not our mercy toward our neighbor, even after we've come to believe in who Christ is and have mercy on our neighbor. That's not the perfection. The perfection is Christ himself. Everything else is simply gravy, really. And there's nothing wrong with gravy. I want gravy in my potatoes, but they're not the meat, right? Uh, gravy is not the meat. It's not the same thing as the actual substitutionary atonement of Christ himself. Yeah, the uh, I think a good way of looking at that too is uh, if you think of if you think of the Christianity, the Christian faith, like uh, like the game of Jenga. You know, if you take out the bottom blocks first, which some people like to do to end the game quick, uh, the whole thing just crumbles down and falls apart. Uh, so if you take out the substitutionary, vicarious, sufficient work of Christ on the cross, yeah, you know, the whole thing crumbles, and it does turn into just you know, moral teaching and that kind of thing. But that's not what Christ came to do. It's not what the scriptures say. The whole Christianity, the whole Christian faith is about. It, it is about this singular event that changed the world, his death and resurrection for us. He then points us to four different scripture passages, so we'll try to look at all of those. Uh, we might have to split into the break to, to get to them all, but the first one is Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and I think the emphasis here, we really are going to have to kind of keep our eyes on, on faith coming up throughout this, uh, that Christ is enough. Uh, although here again, uh, this particular section is about the, the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul is doing a, a great deal of things in his defense of the faith against adding on to it by a number of things like circumcision. He's comparing sonship and slavery and whatnot. But in the midst of this, he has this beautiful turn of phrase that really does start at, at verse 4, where he just starts speaking about what Jesus has achieved. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you got this very famous verse that follows right on the heels of it. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What jumps out more than anything else, though, to me, Pastor Schultes, there is is the word yeah. redeem, though. Like, like mm. that's a word that it sounds so friendly and cozy, but it's kind of slave language almost. You know, it's to buy somebody. It's to it's to right. own them, right? Yeah, it's a very uh, yeah. It has, it has lots of economic. It has uh, even sacrificial language in it too, because we know that the way that Christ redeemed us, that He buys us back, is by uh, the precious offering, a uh, sacrifice of His own blood. So it's yeah, it does seem like. I mean, we we say, oh, I redeemed a coupon, you know, that kind of thing, or I redeemed a Groupon for my uh, you know my kids' uh, adventure at uh, whatever the aquarium or something. But it actually has a, a lot more weight to it, uh, like you've like you said there. So we've been bought back from being beneath the law, like unto a slave, but then the, the miracle is that it wasn't unto slavery, it's unto sonship. Yeah, the, the image that comes to mind there, too, a couple of things. One is the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the son comes back uh, after wandering around and uh, squandering all the inheritance, and he he's talking to himself out loud, and they, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and I'll, I'll at least try to be a slave. You know, At least I can be a servant, because they, they had food. They weren't eating out of pig troughs. Uh, but so he, he starts working up this deal that he's going to make with his dad. And it's basically a, it, it's a contractual idea. It's, ba it's based on works. And uh, the father doesn't do that, though. The father runs out to him and restores not only the inheritance and everything else, but restores him to sonship, restores him to the family, restores him to everything. Uh, and it's completely the father's doing. The, the son didn't you know, do a blessed thing uh, to deserve or earn or merit that. 
it, it's it's really a, it's a rebirth uh, in a lot of ways or a resurrection to uh, to use Paul's language from Second Corinthians that we had touched on just a few minutes ago too. Dr. Pieper then jumps back to Galatians 3 verse 13. I'm going to give a little context of this here starting at verse 11 where Paul says now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith rather the law teaches he's implying here the one who does them shall live by them and now 13 here's the verse he wants to point to and the more of this blessed exchange language here Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham which is faith that's the whole point of the book of Galatians might come to the Gentiles that's the nations non-Jews you and me so that we might receive the promised spirit, that's the one he talks about later, is going to help us call our Father to God in heaven. We might receive the promised spirit through faith. But what, what Peter's pointing us to here again is this blessed exchange language and the, the, the completion that is done, right? He became a curse for us to undo the curse. Yeah, it's, uh, again, the, the, the miracle, the blessed exchange of it, it's, uh, well, it's just a complete opposite of what we would expect. You know, this is why he brings it up in the this opening question of salvation. We would expect that there would be something for us to do. You know, we would expect that there would be a, a list to follow, um, you know, a, a regulation to keep, a command to obey, and so forth. But that's not what Scripture says time and time again. It, it goes back to, yeah, the redemption. It goes back to the promise by faith, it, not of the works of the law, but by by the gospel. Uh, that we might receive. You know, all the language here, all the verbs are directing us to us being on the receiving end of God's gracious, merciful action. You know, he's the one that blesses us. He's the one that's giving us, you know, the faith, the promise, the blessing of Abraham, all of these things. He, he becomes the curse for us even. So he takes the punishment that we deserved. You know, there's, uh, there's just more and more gospel that abounds in this section. That's Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California, talking with myself, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, on cross defense about the absoluteness of Christianity, that there is no more perfect or no more additional religion or spirituality because of the complete absoluteness of Jesus' vicarious satisfaction of all our sins on the cross. You're listening to Cross Defense here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be back after this short break. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Worldwide KFUO is faithful to the Holy Scriptures. Our talk programs, music programs, and worship services focus on the message of salvation through Christ. 
generations of families have confidence in KFUO to proclaim a clear, unwavering message of Christ crucified for sins. Faithful, scriptural, Lutheran. We are Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery, and it happens in our own communities. Victims can be any gender, age, or race. Join the Department of Homeland Security's Blue Campaign to learn how to recognize and report this heinous crime. Visit our website at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. That's www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. Your second look could be their second chance. In the hours before the Allied invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944, D-Day, troops were preparing to land on a 50-mile stretch of French coastline. Two days before, Chaplain George Russell Barber conducted church services on 11 different ships, distributing thousands of small service testaments provided by the Gideons International. Barber quoted the 23rd Psalm, attempting to comfort the anxious troops. And on D-Day, Lieutenant Colonel Barber led his men onto Omaha Beach under intense enemy fire. Hundreds of soldiers were killed, and in the water, a scene Barber never forgot, small Bibles floating everywhere. As men in the water died in his arms, Barber quoted Jesus' words from John 14, 1 and 2. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Right now, you can double the impact of your giving to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They got their dollar-for-dollar match. It's back. A fantastic opportunity to help new Christians, new Lutherans in places like Slovakia, Mongolia, and Japan have at their fingertips fantastic biblical resources like the Small Catechism, a children's garden of Bible stories, and Good News Magazine. Did you know that the cost to translate and print one small catechism in a foreign language is only $5? Now imagine just how far that $5 goes as a tool put into the hands of a faithful pastor to help his people learn the language of the Bible, the importance of confessing the same faith once for all delivered to the saints, and of course that proper distinction between law and gospel, that the gospel is that Jesus wants you to be his own and live under him in his kingdom, which is of course why he shed his precious blood for you. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is working in over 105 languages with over 840 titles published in 95 of those languages. I'm not kidding when I say they're doing phenomenal work all around the globe, and they are certainly worth contacting and supporting with your mission giving. You can learn more about the Lutheran Heritage Foundation at lhfmissions.org. That's lhfmissions.org. Come on, just go ahead right now. Head over, give them five bucks. That'll get two catechisms translated and printed. Totally worth your time. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Jonathan Fisk here chatting with Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California, about the absoluteness of Christianity and that there's two reasons for claiming that there is no other religion that can surpass Christianity. The first one, which we're defending from Scripture here, is the absoluteness, the totality of the sufficient 
death of Jesus on behalf of the world. This is a perfect, as Pieper calls it, salvation. We were looking at Galatians chapter 4 and 3 to deal with that, but he also tells us to look at Acts chapter 26, verse 18. And here, you're going to have Jesus actually speaking to Paul in the midst of Paul recounting his vision and how he was converted on the road to Damascus. Uh, I'm going to read a little more here to make sure we get the context of all of this. And he's talking, by the way, uh, to a guy named King Agrippa. That's important too, although not as important just for dashing in like we are right now. So Paul talking to King Agrippa says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. This is verse 12. With the authority and commission of the chief priests, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, apparently God speaks Hebrew, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, and now here's verse 18, is why we're here, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Notice faith showed up again. Sanctified by faith in me. A couple of things there. Sanctified being used as a salvation word rather than as a uh, become a better person word. Very common mm-hmm. thing for the scriptures to do. Forgiveness of sins very much connected to that setting apart, the sanctification. But I think maybe what Peter's also wanting us to see here is how Paul is treating the rest of the religions of the world as darkness and Christianity as light. And he says it's all under the power of Satan and Christianity alone is under the power of God. Yeah, the uh, the other biblical account that comes to mind is like in uh, John's gospel where he, you know, Jesus uses repeatedly the language of light and life to describe himself and his work of salvation that he's accomplishing and then he uses the the opposite of that the contrast to that of darkness and death and you know sin and devil and and the world you know many in many ways too as you know the fallen world as a way of showing the the darkness the blindness of fallen humanity uh, you know think of like nicodemus who comes to jesus at night and doesn't quite understand yet about what it means to be born again by water and the spirit and and later in the gospel we find out he does uh, at least capture a little bit of that, but that's the yeah, that's the contrast I think that people wants us to see is in Christ in the cross we have true light, true life because He's the one doing the work for us. He's the one forgiving. He's the one sanctifying. He's the one giving the faith. And in the other religions of the world around us, we see darkness, blindness, death, uh, even uh, even bewitchment by uh, by Satan himself. Uh, to, to to deceive. You know, this is what this is what he did in the garden. Uh, this is what he does continually. Uh, put a false light, disguise him as an angel, disguise himself as an angel of light, and uh, then try to uh, deceive or uh, devour uh, the faith of uh, of people and or or misdirect uh, their faith to something else. One more set of verses here that Peeper gives us to try to demonstrate that Christianity's perfection is not its moral code, but the perfection of Christ's vicarious fulfillment. And there are more than what he's giving us, but these these are, again, just awesome verses. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 47. I'm going to read from verse 36, actually. This is the end of the book of Luke, the very close of the gospel. 
and the uh, I guess you could call it the counterpart to the Great Commission, the counterpart to the institution of bath- baptism at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is appearing after his resurrection to his disciples, and he, he says this. Uh, Luke says this. As they, that's the disciples, were talking about these things, that's that some of them had actually seen Jesus already. Jesus himself stood among them, boom, there he is, and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And demonstrating the physicality of his resurrection, which amazingly there's people out there that want to deny who, who claim to be Christian. But not the main point, though. And, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and ate it before them. Again, the physicality of the resurrection. Then, here's kind of where we're going. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. I think he's referring to what was said before. Look, I'm alive. I'm resurrected from the dead. That's what I told you before, so that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and verse 46 is where Peter wants us to go directly, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then to finish uh, his, his commission here, you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Uh, so at the very end, Jesus is risen from the dead. What's he want everybody to know? Well, that's what scripture said had to happen for everyone to live. That's the the perfection of Christianity involves the perfection of his sacrifice. It's also, I think, good, good to look at what he uh, what he doesn't say uh, because he doesn't say anything about uh, you know morality or uh, ethics or uh, works of the law here. He he again goes back to what he has accomplished and fulfilled and completed by that uh, by that sacrifice on the cross. When he says it is finished, uh, he doesn't mean well it's finished, but Here's now what you got to do, or it's finished, uh, and uh, but there's still something missing. You know, when God finished creation on the seventh day, He said it was all good, and He rested. There wasn't anything else to be added to it. It was done. It was complete. It was everything in its place. You know, the same thing is true with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Everything is done, complete, and well, new creation is the good uh, the good word that Paul used earlier. And so, yeah, what could you add to this? Nothing. You, don't don't try. In other words, you you, you can't. Uh, but rather, yeah, rather receive and rejoice that this is what this is what he spoke. This is what he said. This is what happened as he promised and and delivers to us. It is interesting here that the word repentance is about as close as you get to the law, and and the repentance really is only acknowledging your sin at this point, that I would I would repent for, or I think the Greek is into the forgiveness of sin, so that I would hear my own need and believe that that need has been completed in Jesus. And again, this does not deny that good works are good. That's the, that's the furthest thing from what we're saying. But it does deny that good works complete in any way Christianity. Yeah, yeah. it's not like the, uh, you know, sometimes you have to, uh, like if you're making a business deal, you got to throw in a perk 
you know, maybe some baseball tickets or uh, some box seats at a hockey game or something to uh, sweeten the deal. There's nothing that we can do to throw in anything to sweeten the deal of the resurrection and, and his crucifixion for us. It's, it's already as good as it gets and a blessed exchange. Uh, the, the best thing we can give him is our sin, which is why the repentance part is in there. Pieper goes on now to say in the middle of the paragraph on page 35, bottom paragraph, because through Christ's vicarious satisfaction, God is reconciled, the sins of the world forgiven, and this forgiveness proclaimed, is proclaimed in the gospel. The person who by the working of the gospel believes in the gospel is through that faith, without the deeds of the law, declared righteous before God. And that means that he is perfect in the sight of God. Now, there's a ton going on there, and he's got a bunch of different passages for us to look up in the midst of this, but the main ideas, again, are that the gospel itself is the proclamation that perfection is given for free, faith alone receives this righteousness from God, and that means that you are, in fact, perfect in God's sight. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think so. That, that's definitely what he's getting at. I mean, in some ways, it's a... Uh a repetition of what he said earlier in the like the first half of this uh, section, but it, in other ways, it's also a I guess a strengthening of that. Now, now he's moving a little bit into how this is given to us. You know, this is why he one of the scripture passages he writes uh, or cites is Romans 10. You know, about the Word. You know, how does how does the this good news, this blessed exchange, come to us? Well, it comes to us through the gospel, and the gospel is. You know, the power of God for salvation, Paul writes, the gospel is uh, given to us in tangible forms, in water and words, in bread and wine. Uh, it, it comes to us in those means of grace that we, uh, as we call them. So he's going to point us to these, a set of verses here. These are going to be making different points, though. These aren't all kind of piling on the same point. But the first point he's trying to make is that the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in the gospel itself. That that's how it comes to us. And he points us to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. I'm going to pick up, now I lost where I was, uh, at, at verse 10, uh, where Paul writes, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all set up here, right? But that, that calling on Christ as your Savior, Lord have mercy, is the path to salvation. But here's the question, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That is, how can you call on Christ for salvation if you don't believe in him? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That is, how can you call on Christ if you don't believe in him because you've never heard about him? And... How are they to hear without someone preaching? That is, how are you to call on Christ if you don't believe in him because you've never heard about him since no one's been sent to preach? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So if we're going to have faith, you must send people to speak out loud words about who Jesus is and what he's done so that people might hear them in order that they might believe. And now he goes off on a side tangent here as it is written, like to prove this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Old Testament says that Coming with words of God is a beautiful thing, but he says they have not all obeyed the gospel. That is not everyone believes, even as they hear us preaching this. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Again, this is a bit of a tangent here, right? So preachers are beautiful. Old Testament proves that. Uh, and yet the Old Testament also shows not everybody believes, but he's asking this question, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he's 
he's asking the question to prove the point, which is verse 17 that people wants us to look at. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That verse probably can stand on its own without the context, but it's good to show the context has brought us to this point, that faith in Christ only comes from hearing. You could also get it from Braille, so don't get me wrong. It's not like you can't uh, you can't read it, but it comes from the word about Jesus from Jesus. Yeah, God, God is the God who speaks. Right? We hear that from the very beginning of the, the scriptures. You know, Let there be light, and, and there was light, and it was so. And on throughout the entire Old Testament, right, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and this prophet and that prophet, and you know, the, the, Lord, the Lord speaks. You know, this is what he does. And then finally we get in, you know, in John, the word made flesh. You know, we get uh, God in human flesh incarnate. We get God in human uh, form. We get him in in words still, and those words then are recorded by those who saw and heard and then were sent by Jesus to proclaim that word. So the church is, uh, I think Luther called it a mouth house, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like a big megaphone where we're charged and uh, given the task, the vocation, the calling to continue to hear God's word and then to speak God's word too. You know, it's like uh, if you're on the airplane and you get the uh, command that there's some turbulence and things, you, you have to take the oxygen mask first before you give it to the person next to you. So if we're going to speak God's word and confess it and defend it and rejoice in it, we also have to first receive that word. And, uh, and that word gives us the faith that God promises. I can't think of a better place to amplify Romans 10, 17 than 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he points us to verses 4 and 5. Uh, I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 1, though. And they actually, there's a great, great stuff in chapter 1 as well right before this. But uh, Paul, again, writing to this congregation that basically is in the process of rejecting him, says, When I came to you, the congregation he planted originally, now rejecting him, says, When I first came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. As he, he did come proclaiming the testimony of God, but he didn't come thinking that he was going to find a way to say it better than the, the simple declaration of the truth. Rather, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I would call that, as much as I, I love talking about justification by grace through faith, and I would love to have the, the, the kind of the placard Bible verse of Lutheranism be a, a, a grace and faith language verse, I think it's this verse more than any other that, that can I call it the, um, oh, the formal principle of, uh, of, of Lutheranism? And, you know, this is kind of what we actually do because we believe in grace, because we believe in faith. We decide to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's what we do as we go out trying to see faith and grace happen in the world. And so Paul says, that's that's what he's doing here. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So he had his own personal fear. Um, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. That's the part that Peter's pointing us directly to. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, which I don't think means that they are the things he said it's not. It, it, It wasn't tricky or clever or lofty. Rather, the demonstration of the Spirit's power was to know nothing but Christ and him crucified so that, verse 5, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. That's what, that is what I figured out, you know, putting your trust in princes and all that, but in the power of God, which again is Christ and him crucified. Yeah, this is very, very similar to what Luther would also call the theology of the cross, right? that, uh, that God hides himself in not the, the things that are filled with glory and glitz and glamour and you know, the neon signs and the, the flashy things, but rather in the, the humble, ordinary, even weak things. You know, look at the cross, for example. You look at the cross, you think, well, that doesn't seem like victory. But 
it is because of what Jesus is doing there. It, and so the proclamation of what Jesus is doing on the cross also, it may not look attractive. It may not, uh, you know, win bestseller um, awards for the New York Times or it may not uh, bring in you know, millions of dollars. But this is the message that, in fact, gives life, whereas all other messages, all other words uh, bring bring death, bring darkness, bring uh, despair. Uh, so this is a, this is a message unlike any other, which is why Paul wants us, and I think why Peter's quoting this, you know, wants us to rest our faith. Yeah, again, not on the words of men, not on our works, but rather on this message of the cross, right? Jesus and Him crucified. Um, at the top of my little reports that I give for our monthly council meetings here at church, that verse is on the top of there all the time. I, you know, some of the substance underneath changes about you know what we're doing around church and all that, but that verse. Uh, stays there as a reminder for what we're about doing at uh, Redeemer and you know this part of uh, of his church and, and our vocations. Because Christ and him crucified, even 2,000 years removed from you, is the righteousness of God for you. It is the only way to be righteous in a way that will endure beyond the grave. He's going to show this again and talk about this in this righteousness, this goodness language by pointing us to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. And this one's a tough one to jump right into the middle. I mean, we could kind of just take it by itself, but to get the context, you got to go all the way back to 321 at the very least. And then there's going to be some distracting parts in here. But he says, Paul says, Romans 321, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. I think that's so important there. So there is a goodness that is not based on the law at all. Although, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is this goodness that's not based on the law? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And now he goes on a tangent to talk about sin. For all have sinned, excuse me, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also there's no distinction among the saved. And all, you got to kind of hear that there, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. Whereas that comes, what we've been talking about, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. But what's the point here? To be received by faith. That is not to be worked for, not to be earned, but simply to be received as a promise. This, this whole thing of saving by grace was to show God's righteousness, not ours, his, to show how good he is. Because in his divine forbearance, here that is mercy maybe, patient mercy, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That may be the single most confusing and yet important to understand verses in the Bible, that God is both righteous in a justice sense and yet he's righteous in a merciful sense and that Jesus is how that happens. His death for us is how that happens. Then what becomes of our boasting, he asked, it's excluded. By what kind of law that is, is this something I have to do to be perfect? Is no longer boast by a law of works? No, no, no. By the law of faith. If you, if you boast, you get in the way of your own faith. For we hold, here's the verse that we're supposed to be getting to, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's kind of the, 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 the stamp on the back of this. He goes on to make some more kind of side arguments against those who might be arguing. But we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We are saved by faith alone. And this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, that's a pretty important thing to remember. Yeah, this is a great verse. I mean, this, is, this verse is read, I, I would imagine, at almost most, uh, if not all, uh, Reformation services uh, in Lutheran churches. It's one of the scripture readings that comes up in the uh, the weekly and the uh, pericopal readings, but it, it's just a great verse because it, it drives a heart, uh, drives a dagger right into the heart of our, our attempts to self-justify, and then also 
redeems and brings comfort and hope all at the same time. You know, it, it completely does away with anything we could possibly do and then shows what Christ has already done for us. He jumps us to chapter 5, verse 1, and we, I think we can just take this one as a capstone from, from there. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what he was just saying back in chapter 3, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's important to see this isn't a peaceful emotion in my daily life. This is on the day of judgment, God is no longer at war with me because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, we think of peace often, like you said, in a bit more subjective, emotional, kind of feeling-based way, like, uh, oh, I, I feel at peace or I feel at rest with this decision or, or what have you. But yeah, this is really something bigger than that. This is, a, this is a kind of peace that is ours and that we can be confident of no matter what we're feeling. You know, if our, our emotions go up and down and our feelings uh, change uh, like the wind, uh, we can have confidence that our salvation, our gift of faith does not rest on those emotions, but rather this peace that surpasses our understanding that's built on you know, the foundation, the cornerstone of Christ and his cross. He wants to emphasize as well, though, that this means that you are perfect in the sight of God, that there, there is a reality at work. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't platonic. And so he points us also to 1 Corinthians 2, 6. And this is one where the context really helps. We read everything up to this point, right? We read about knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. We read about the demonstration of the spirit being the creation of faith in these words. Verse 6, which comes right after this, says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Uh, that is to say that this isn't a dream. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't actual foolishness. It just looks like foolishness to the world. This is actual, eternal, everlasting. The word of God will not perish. Righteousness. Yeah, the, uh, it's, what, it's what Paul calls the, you know, the wisdom of the cross, right? The wisdom that appears to be folly to the world and, and foolishness and complete absurdity. But this is, this is where true wisdom is found, in Christ crucified and risen. So, uh, with just a few minutes left here, the, the last part of the paragraph, we've been picking at this paragraph for an hour. I mean, there's just so much Bible in it. Um, this is God's method, method, he says. Dr. Pieper says, at bottom of page 35, to him who is inherently ungodly, or in the Greek, asa base, uh, without, without a god, um, his faith is counted as righteousness. Christ's perfect righteousness covers the sinner's own unrighteousness. And he points us to Romans 4, 5 and 1 John 2, 1 to 2. We'll go ahead and go to Romans 4, 5 first, which says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. There's that ungodly word again. We heard it before. We heard it from people. We're hearing it now. God justifies not the godly. He doesn't. He's a physician. He doesn't heal the healthy. He heals the sick. He justifies the ungodly to the one who believes in that. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. Apart from works, he quotes a psalm, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Forgiveness is not a happy feeling either, right? Forgiveness is a literal overlooking or sending away of what someone has actually done that's wrong. It's, it's unjust, even in a sense. Yeah, you think of it, uh, if you, a lot of people, you know, like little kids, they, oh, I want, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. I want, I want what's fair. <laughs> well, the good thing about Christianity is that we don't get what is fair, right? God is, uh, God is unfair in that way because he punishes his son where we go free and we can, we can be thankful that God is unfair towards us in our sin, that he looks over them, that he passes over them, yeah. 
And then finally, they begin this passage from 1 John chapter 2, just in case people say, you Lutherans, you're all Pauline, you don't like the rest of the Bible. Nah, poppycock, we, we, we like it just fine. Um, chapter 2, verse 1 and following, John writes this. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, people are trying to demonstrate that Christ's perfect righteousness covers the sinner's own unrighteousness. Yeah, it's it's a marvelous thing. The, the sweeping, inclusive character of John's words there are great. You know, for your sins, it's, it's personal, it's for you, and yet at the same time, it's also for everybody, for the sins of the whole world. You, you can't really, you just can't add to that verse. It, it's great because uh, everybody is given uh well everybody is given good news there everybody's given that uh that same point that peeper's been harping on the whole time which is christ died for you and uh you know you you qualify right christ died for sinners and uh, and you count you you get that so my guest pastor samuel schultz he's pastor at redeemer lutheran church in huntington beach california thanks for being on the show today pastor schultz gladly blessed day to you and all the listeners out there you're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. And we certainly do hope you've heard that good news in this last hour. Cross Defense is listener supported. That means we rely on your giving to KFUO to keep Cross Defense on the air and coming to you via the internet. So if you have not yet become an annual contributor contributor to KFUO Radio or, say, a day sponsor, only $40 a month is less than you're paying for cable, consider doing so. And let us know that the reason you're doing so is you are hungry for more Cross defense. It might seem like Peeper is, well, beating a dead horse, but he's not beating a dead horse at all. He's riding a living one. And he's he's trying to convince us as Christians who are also astride the living mount of the church, the, 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 the pillar and foundation of the truth that's never going to die. He's trying to convince us not to get off it, right? Not to stop. You can't stop eating your daily bread. You can't stop trusting in Christ. If you don't want to stop trusting in Christ, then you can't stop hearing about Christ. And part of that hearing is the total sufficiency of who he is and what he's done, that there is nothing more absolute than the death of Jesus Christ as the propitiation for your sins. And as John says so wonderfully there, not only your sins, but the sins of the whole world. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Until next time, rock on. <laughs>